Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name is Greg Dobbs. Elizabeth Becker began her career as a journalist and a war correspondent for the Washington Post in Cambodia. Elizabeth is the author of When the War Was Over, Cambodia and the Khmer Revolution, and America's Vietnam War, a narrative history which was aimed at young adults. She was a member of the New York Times staff that won the 2002 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. Today I'm talking to Elizabeth about her book, You Don't Belong Here, how three women rewrote the story of war. The book focuses on the lives and careers of Catherine Leroy, Francis Fitzgerald and Kate Webb, three journalists who reported on the Vietnam War. Elizabeth, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you for having me. Before we talk about each of these women individually, what were the barriers facing women in reporting on the Vietnam War? And as a former war correspondent yourself, to what extent these barriers still exist today? These women came in mid-60s, 1966 and 1967, and the barriers were formidable. In those days, women were not considered um, fit to be regular reporters in newsrooms, such as in Australia. Um, they were, women were largely consigned to the women's section, which was fashion and furniture, family, food. So that was the barrier just at home. So needless to say, if they couldn't be regular news reporters at home, they certainly were not considered good enough to be reporters overseas. So all three women had to pay their own way. They had no jobs when they arrived and they had to find work when they were there. No health insurance, nothing. So that's the media restrictions. Australia totally refused to allow any women to report from the battlefield when they were fighting. And the United States had a prohibition against the same prohibition, but it was more loosely adhered to, and the women eventually were able to get around it. That was historically very important. And, um, and then there was a very strong cultural bias among the colleagues. The title, You Don't Belong Here, comes from the fact that the men literally told the women, you don't belong here. And um, they did not help them when they needed help to get a lot of the work they needed. And um, they belittled their accomplishments. And there's more than a lot of um, unwanted advances, a lot of gossip about their sexual life, and um, not taking them seriously. So you have those formidable kinds of um, problems. And this all in the middle of a war. This is not just in a nice peaceful Sydney, this is in war. So it was formidable. Now, is it still exist? No. Um, and largely thanks to these women, their sacrifices, their ingenuity and their successes, and I can't stress their successes too much, prove that women in fact can do what they did. The, the photographer, Catherine Lacroix, the, um, the magazine writer, Frances Fitzgerald, and then Kate Webb, the Australian um, combat reporter. They all were greatly successful, and thanks to them and some other female colleagues, 
they convinced the United States to drop forever the ban against women. And now women are routinely sent out as staff war correspondents. At some points in the last few years, I I was amazed that most of the um, foreign correspondents covering Middle East wars were women. And, um, and you'll see that. Uh, there are some other problems, but um, overall, these women left a, um, they, they sort of were the missing link between World War II and um, post-Vietnam. Now, Katharine Lawal, who was she? What was her background? She's French, grew up in a Parisian suburb just north of Paris. Her father was in manufacturing, a manager, and her mother was a homemaker. And um, she was a teeny, teeny person. She was barely five feet tall, very slender, and rebellious sort. She did not finish high school. On the other hand, was an accomplished pianist. And she, for fun, she learned how to be a very expert parachutist. So she's a, a, a character right there. She loved to go to the jazz clubs in Paris. And at the same time, she inherited her father's right-wing um, political views. So there's nothing predictable about her when she arrived. And so she arrives in um, Vietnam with the idea of becoming a photographer and no experience, none. She had one like a camera. She had it wrapped around her neck with a shoelace. And she seemed to have a rather unique view of her art. I was uh, really intrigued by this comment she made, which goes, I cannot photograph anybody for whom I don't have any feelings. I would rather stay at home, smoke a cigarette and drink a good glass of wine. Does that reflect somehow her personality? Yeah, she, she had, um, remember, she had no experience. So she is self-taught and she learns on the battlefield she logged more time in the battlefield the first two years than um, any other reporter, a photographer, whatever. And her shorthand for that was she wanted to photograph people only if she could capture their eyes, which sounds normal in a photo studio, but when it's a battlefield, it's outrageous. But she managed to do that. And she really got to know um, not just the, Amer the American military, but Vietnamese people, and she threw a lot of herself into it, there's no question, and she paid a high price for that. She captured a really iconic moment in the war, the battle near Khaesan, and what was known as the hill fights, in particular, Hill 860. What was distinctive about her work? This is a, this is a perfect instance, thank you for bringing it up, because a, an America, a young American medic was in the middle of this horrendous battle, trying to save one of the soldiers who was down. Katrine's so small, he doesn't even see her. And who would imagine that a photographer would be there anyhow? It'd be crazy. And she captures him in a series of um, photographs as he tries to revive and save this man. He fails. He screams in anguish, uh, the most painful face. Then he gets angrier and angrier, and then he rushes... Um, uh, the foxhole of, of the um, enemy soldier. And uh, it was published around the world. And one magazine, I think, compared it to some of the most iconic, heroic photographs from World War II. She was the first photographer to take pictures of the North Vietnamese in South Vietnam. And that was quite a coup. The Tet Offensive, of course, was a big turning point in the war. That's 1968 around Lunar New Year. Katrine 
had a lot of courage and took a lot of risks. So she goes to Wei, the old imperial capital, which was the center of the battle. And she crossed the line in the, in the old citadel and was immediately captured by North Vietnamese soldiers. No other photographer had done that. There's a French person who was also being captured. And so she talked to them and she charmed them. They had taken away her camera. They gave it back to her. She took photographs and then talked them into letting her and another reporter, a French reporter, talked them into letting her leave, which was astonishing. And she managed to cross the line again and get the photographs back to Saigon. And through the whole war, she's the only uh, photographer who accomplished that. And what effect did that have on her career? It was huge. She had already had um, the photographs you just talked about. Uh, she had a couple of other very um, amazing exclusives. And this one led to a big uh, cover photograph in Life magazine. And it drove the American competitors crazy. I think, I think it was CBS said, sent a, a, a cable to his reporter in um, Saigon how come this five-foot French woman can get this photograph and you can't? So this started um, the legend of um, Catherine Lawal. If we can turn now to Frances Fitzgerald. And mm -hmm. Frances couldn't have been more different from Catherine Leroy. She came from uh, what almost a Gatsby kind of family, a very wealthy, very privileged, very what we call in America blue blood, very patrician um, family has studded with um, famous educators and um, bishops. And she was born with more than a silver spoon in her mouth. Her father was the number three in the, in the CIA. Her mother, and the parents divorced when she was quite young, her mother was <clears throat> a New York socialite and a big wig in the Democratic Party circles and also the um, not-so-hidden um, mistress of former uh, presidential candidate Adlai Stevenson. So Frances Fitzgerald grew up in the bosom of the elite. She knew the people who um, were making all these war policies. She was a debutante. She had, she had a lovely amount of money in the bank account that her dad set up for her. <clears throat> so it was highly unusual that someone with that kind of privilege decides to go to Vietnam and cover a war. She, I mean, she'd never, she had no experience with even middle class, really, much less um, what you see in a war, particularly in a war like Vietnam, where the destruction was horrendous, you're around a lot of poverty, and it was an eye-opener for her. Because of that privilege, when she arrived, they all thought, oh, she's a dilettante, she'll she'll breeze in, she'll get some stories from the embassy, and then she'll breeze out. We, we won't take her seriously. They always had a reason not to take the woman seriously. For Katrina, it's because she was wearing her camera around with a shoelace and didn't really know how to take a photograph. However, a lot of men arrived in a similar situation. And with Frankie, the opposite. Oh, she's too privileged. She's just messing around. She's a dilettante. She showed how wrong that was. Her education seems to have given her reporting a much more scholarly foundation, I suppose. What kind of effect did that have on her reporting and her view of the war in general? She was an honor graduate from Radcliffe, which was the women's college associated with Harvard. She'd realized that missing from the reporting of the war was any idea of what Vietnam itself was. What is this country? 
what does the American war have to do with its history? What is the war doing to the people, to the culture? What is all this destruction leading to? And the only answer she could find to give her a foundation was Paul Muse. So that was very important. And he had been raised, you know, the French were the colonizers and Americans essentially took the war over from them. And he had been raised in Vietnam. He spoke Vietnamese. And he was one of the um, the first to, um, after the World War II, to say to France, we got to get out of there. You're not going to win. So <clears throat> she was. She needed someone who who could give her that kind of background. And how did that uh, influence the way she reported on the war? Um, it gave her confidence that she that she was going down the right trail. And it's she had she'd been writing a lot of articles, and she quoted him in one of the articles. And when she went back to the United States to write what became her her. Um, amazingly um, successful book, Paul Muse got in touch with her. He, um, he was at Yale then, visiting professor, and he, he got in touch with her and said, I love what you're doing. You know, it's, you're, she was singular reporting. No one else was doing that kind of reporting. And so she got to meet him. Sadly, um, he was very ill and he died soon afterwards. She seemed to also have quite a different approach to gathering information for her reports. I understand that she would actually sit down and patiently listen to the Vietnamese stories and, and uh, view of the war. Her colleagues say she put foreign into foreign correspondent because instead of spending all that time on the battlefield um, to, to figure out the effect of all of the different Americanist strategies, she would, for instance, pick out a village and she spent a lot of time talking to the people. Now, she didn't speak Vietnamese, she had a translator, but her French was fluent, so she was able to talk to them. And she was able to, to write incredibly good articles, and they weren't scholastic articles. They, she's a, a very good stylist, um, explaining this is the way the war looks from a, a Vietnamese village. At night, These the communists come and tax them. During the day, the, the, the government taxes them. They, um, they're worried about this, that, and the other, and they feel very insecure. They, they can't stand all the, hem- the heavy munitions, et cetera, et cetera. It was completely new then. I mean, nowadays, it later become what people do, but f- she was one of the originals, and um, it was a huge impression. And I think this article, uh, I think it's titled Life and Death of a Vietnamese Village, which yes. uh, was taken up by the New York Times. That was one of the articles that really established her as as you say, a foreign correspondent. <laughs> yes, it did. And um, and as I said, um, given all the obstacles that these women faced, it was very important that they had to succeed and had to succeed pretty quickly. Uh, Katrine did as well, and so did Frankie. So after she did her, her initial year-long reporting, she went back to the United States and did deep research into the history, and that led to her seminal book, fire in the lake. If we can talk now about Kate Webb. Kate yes. was born in New Zealand but moved to Australia and Australians have this uh, thing of claiming New Zealanders as Australians so you know <laughs> <laughs> that's something we just do. Kate was a really well-educated woman from a prominent scholarly and progressive New Zealand family that with journalism in the mix there. A very unusual childhood and youth marred by a family tragedy. Kate as you said, grew up in a, a family that um, prized education above all things. Her mother read Latin for fun. 
and they always talked to, about um, topics of the day. When her father had a sabbatical, he took her with her sister to to Europe post-World War, War Two, and they um, were very strong on the sense that Australia was part of Asia. It should stop being, you know, have such a colonial outlook. And um, yes, she she had a tragedy. Her of her close friend committed suicide in front of her, and um, which is just traumatic beyond belief. She was, uh, you know, 15 years old. Her family helped her through it, but in college, her parents died in a um, car accident. So it, you're right. I mean, how could anybody get through it? But um, she had a degree in philosophy with honors. She was a very talented artist, and she was get after college. She wanted to keep going possibly in the art direction, but she had a, a school debt. So she took a, a job just to make some money and pay back the debt at the Sydney Mirror. She was what in America we would call a copy boy, just taking copy from one desk to the other. And she got interested in the stories about Australia fighting in Vietnam. And in the same way that the other two women just said, okay, I think I want to go look at that. Kate packed her, her um, typewriter and bought a one-way ticket to Saigon. Uh, she actually arrived on a tourist visa in Vietnam. Yep, 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 she did. And um, she had to find someone to give her credentials so she could stay there with a professional journalist visa. And uh, one of the bureau chiefs famously said, why would I give it to a woman? And so she found the one woman editor in all of Saigon, all of Vietnam, uh, an American who ran an alternative newspaper for GIs. Um, and <clears throat> she gave her the credentials, gave her some assignments, and Kate was able to stay on. Uh, and Kate was actually um, in Saigon at the height of the Tet Offensive, and I was really intrigued by uh, the way she described it, uh, an attack on the American embassy, in fact, which she described as a butcher shop in Eden. This was a big breakthrough for her because she was still, she was getting some work from the United Press International, but this is the same company that where the man said, why would I hire a woman? But she really outperformed most of the other reporters that day. She was there before anybody else. She saw the embassy, the newly redone embassy, the newly built embassy, and she, she wrote that in her copy. And it became the phrase everybody used to describe what happened in the embassy. And this is important because January 1968 was supposed to be the turning point that would lead to an American victory. General Westmoreland, who was in charge of the military in Saigon, had said he saw light at the end of the tunnel, that the Americans can expect a victory, and this Tet Offensive threw that out the window. So, I mean, Kate's reporting was amazing. And after that, she was taken on as a local hire. And what set her journalism apart from her peers? Um, one, she was very smart. And that counts more than you may realize. Um, She's very perceptive. And like the other two, she burrowed into the Vietnamese society. Now, she's the one who covered the Vietnamese army an awful lot. The big headlines were always going to be when you're, co you're covering Americans, because that's what the American market wanted to hear about, and that's where all the money was. But Kate would go with the South Vietnamese, because 
she said, and she was right, if the American side wins, it's because the South Vietnamese can win. It's not because the Americans can win, because they're not going to stay through it. So she, she was very th- clever that way. She's a good writer, and she had a real human touch. Very clear-eyed. She was not one of those weepy types at all, the opposite. In the book, I mentioned, I quote from several of her articles where you feel like you're right there with her. You're with the guys who are in the gunship. You're with the soldiers who are um, who are getting caught in crossfires. And, and she had that dramatic knack. She was rewarded for that. Her byline becomes known very quickly because of the quality, but also because she's the one woman wire service correspondent, the one woman combat reporter. And a lot of women in the United States used that to say to their bosses, you say that women can't do this. Look at look at Kate Webb's work. And um, so she didn't realize the importance she had as she just was doing this marvelous work. And she also seemed to have a very interesting attitude to well, what was then known as women's liberation. And she actually said she didn't want to be known as a six-foot fat pistol-whipping women's liber. I don't believe right. in women's liberation. Right. How- well, that's because it was none of the women did. She was more vocal about it, but it was a club to hit women over the head with. I mean, if you liked women's liberation, you would be ridiculed. If you ever said there are barriers to women, they'd say, ha, it's just that women don't know how to do it or women aren't worth it. And Kate did not want to have to deal with that. She did not. She didn't want to be called a woman reporter. She was a reporter. She didn't want, and she, you know, make fun of um, women, uh, you know, oh, women's libbers, they're all lesbians, or you know, all, it, was, it was a club. And um, she just would have nothing to do with it. She kept her hair short, very short. She called it her war cut. She was in um, jeans all the time, unless she had to go to an embassy function when she suddenly put on silk clothes. Um, but um, she very consciously made the choice that she was going to keep her head down, not stand out, because she didn't want to have to deal with that stuff. And it worked more or less until it didn't work. If we can really wrap this up, I guess, by talking about the legacy of these three women. And and later in the book, you refer to Ken Burns' documentary on the Vietnam War. And accompanying that documentary is a recommended reading list. All these three women had written critically acclaimed books on the war. Uh, I think Lao Wa, Under Fire, Great Photographers and Writers in Vietnam, and Webb, On the Other Side, 23 Days with the Viet Cong, and Fitzgerald's Fire in the Lake. None of those books were included on that reading list, even though they were a really important part of reporting and the story of Vietnam. Well, and it's even worse because Fire in the Lake by Francis Fitzgerald won the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, and the Bancroft History Award. No other book on the Vietnam War won all three. This is astonishing. To keep her off that list shows the blindsidedness of the way her colleagues saw her. And I interviewed a lot of them, and they said, well, I think, don't put this on the record, but I think she was wrong about this, that, and the other. She won more awards than any of them I interviewed. Here in the United States, the top scholar on the Vietnam War said, fire in the lake was seminal. It changed academics. Yeah, I mean, it it was published in 72, so it looks very different now after all the archives are open 50 years later. But it's still an extremely important book. And Kate's book, my gosh, 
And Katrine, Katrine was the first woman. Here she is. In Vietnam, she won the first woman to win the George Polk Award for photography and the Robert Kappa Gold Medal Award. I mean, any of the other men winning one of them would be thrilled. She won both. And Kate was so accomplished and had such a reputation for respecting and writing about Asian cultures that the best, one of the, the most premier awards for Asian journalists is called the Kate Webb Prize. So it was an insult that none of them were on that. Not a single woman who covered the war and had written a book was on that list. Not a single one. Now, it, it, Ken Burns prizes himself on research, and I can't think that it's an entirely an accident. Well, that's wonderful that your book has actually brought these the work of these <laughs> women to light. And I guess like any good book, it actually leads you to other books, other things to study. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. And I'm so glad you liked it. Talking just briefly about the style of your books, you know, this could have been a textbook or you know, something more encyclopedic, and yet it's more narrative in style. And, and, and I think that comes through too in your previous book, America's Vietnam War, A Narrative History, which, as we mm -hmm. said earlier, was aimed at young adults. Why did you adopt this narrative style? What, what's the value in it for you? I want to tell the full story of these women. And I want it to be the kind of book where you keep turning the page you, they grow on you, you understand the war, you understand them. And to do that, you have to tell the whole story of them. So you know about their families, you know their personal lives, you know how they feel from one year to another. And I I'm trying to get you to read it in a sense as you would a appreciate a novel where there is a narrative drive and you, you, you can feel what they felt. And particularly for women in that situation, their whole lives were affected. So um, if I were going to do a biography, I have to include all of that. And you have to see how their successes, their failures, their disappointments affected them, their lives, and, and the work they did. And all of this within the context. I'm very careful to be in the context of the war. So you see also what they're up against and how they reflect that in their work. So it's, it was very um, deliberate. I wanted it to be a book where you, you really got to understand the war because of these women. And if someone said, do you know any books about the Vietnam War? You say, oh, yeah, yeah. There's a really interesting book about the three women who did it. And if you read it, you'll also understand the war. Elizabeth Becker, this has been a fascinating discussion. And I really hope the book reaches the readership that it deserves. Thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you, Greg. I've been talking to Elizabeth Becker about her book, You Don't Belong Here, How Three Women Rewrote the Story of War. It's published by Black Ink and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. You've been listening to the Good Reading Podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for joining me.